Thursday, October 20th, a twin-engine conveyor 240 with the name Leonard Skinner painted on the side is 580 miles out of Greenville, South Carolina, bound for Baton Rouge. The 24 passengers aboard are heading for a concert date Friday night. They're relaxing. Some are playing poker. Most musicians at a certain point will sit down and they'll say, you know, is our time coming? I mean, when you fly two and three hundred airplanes a year, you always feel that there's a point when it may catch up with you. It is shortly before six o'clock Central Daylight Time. The pilot, Walter McCreary of Dallas, Texas, radios Houston Air Traffic Control. He's low on fuel and can't make Baton Rouge 80 miles away. Instead, he'll try for a small airport at nearby Macomb, Mississippi. When we found out 10 minutes from the Baton Rouge airport that we ran out of gas, and uh, I just heard the pilot go, oh my God. Pilot McCreary turns his plane to the left and starts back toward Macomb. His altimeter reads 2,000 feet. The time is just past 6 o'clock. One of the engines on the conveyor quits, probably starved for fuel. My wife and I were out sitting in our backyard, and we heard this plane come over. With, it sounded like it run on one engine. And uh, then all of a sudden, I heard that engine go out. By now, Pilot McCreary is desperately looking for a spot for an emergency landing. He follows a pipeline route. For reasons unknown, McCreary changes his mind and heads for a better spot, a pasture off to his left. The Convair 240 is in a glide, 100 yards short of the pasture. The wings are clipping treetops. The plane stalls and goes down. The Leonard Skinner band was riding high. They had just released a new album, Street Survivors, and set out on a five-month cross-country tour to promote it. They were on their way to a concert at Louisiana State University when disaster happened. We got to spiral down, trying to lose altitude, trying to face the land. And I thought he was going to make this field, and at the last minute I saw that it wasn't. Started clipping pine trees. And at that point I grabbed a blanket and braced myself and put the blanket over my face. All I saw was treetops. I looked out my windows in the middle of the airplane on the right wing. I tried to get close to the back of the airplane as possible. But I got in the middle of the airplane on the right wing, and um, all I saw was treetops. And at, at first it wasn't so bad, but then when it hit the, you know, the middle of the trees, it was horrible. You know, it, was, it was an experience nobody wants to ever experience, never. Pianist Billy Powell, drummer Artemis Pyle, and another passenger managed to climb through a window and go for help. Neighbors who'd heard the crash were among the first rescue workers to arrive. We walked through the woods to the site. And at that time, there was nobody on the site. Well, we started getting them out then, getting the ones that were hurt out, and everybody's out too. Under the glare of helicopter floodlights, the 23 victims were pulled one by one from the wreckage, placed on stretchers, and carried 100 yards through dense woods and across a creek to waiting ambulances. They were rushed to Southwest Mississippi Medical Center in Macomb. It took more than an hour to get all the victims to the hospital. Six are dead. 11 are admitted for treatment after receiving emergency care. Eight are flown to two other hospitals in Jackson, Mississippi. One, Drummer Pyle, was treated and released. By all accounts, the hospital staff handled the disaster well. The head doctor credited countless rehearsals, which he said prepared his people for the real thing. Before dawn the next morning, the hospital had compiled a list of 26 names and notified next of kin. The dead, the pilot and co-pilot. Band leader Ronnie Van Zant, guitarist Steve Gaines, his sister, singer Cassie Gaines, and assistant road manager Dean Kilpatrick of Jacksonville. The 20 survivors included singer Leslie Hawkins, 
bass guitarist Leon Wilkerson, guitarist Alan Collins, and guitarist Gary Rossington. Wilkerson and Rossington suffered the most severe injuries. He has two broken arms, a broken leg, a broken pelvis, a punctured stomach, and a punctured liver. And he's going to be in the hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, for about another month. But uh, Leon, Leon's got tremendous amounts of internal injuries, and Allen's got a, a broken, not a broken neck, but a cracked neck. Every airplane crash is methodically investigated by specialists from the National Transportation Safety Board. They look at wreckage as pieces of a puzzle, which when put together will tell them why a plane crashed. The search at the scene even extends to the passenger's luggage. The board looks into about 4,500 mishaps a year. To the field investigators, wreckage is routine business. But for the rest of us who saw the remains of Leonard Skinner's Convair 240, the sight is unforgettable. You can't even realize, seeing one of these things on television, exactly what a crash of this magnitude looks like. Up there, sitting against the tree, is a piece of an airplane wing, torn away from the rest of the airplane. Lying down there, at the base of the tree, is the engine. And that back there, that twisted metal back there, is the fuselage of the plane, which sort of was turned around a corner. It was just terrible. People were hollering, screaming, and I've never witnessed anything before in my lifetime. It was just a disaster to me. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, it just hit me hard. Nine days have passed since the crash, and the investigation has really only just begun. Authorities still believe the plane ran out of gas. But why? Didn't they put enough gas in the tanks? Or was there a leak? We won't know the answers to those questions for at least a month. Gary Rossington and Leon Wilkerson are still hospitalized in the intensive care unit. They could stay there anywhere from two more weeks to a month. Leslie Hawkins has had extensive plastic surgery on her face. Alan Collins is moving around despite a huge plaster cast for his cracked neck. Artemis Pyle is not in the hospital, but friends say he is still not recovered from the shock. What about Leonard Skinner? Will, they, will, there, will there be a Leonard Skinner after this? I don't think so. So, I got some questions here, but we can go off script if you want. It's, it's, just, it's your show. You just do what you want to do. So, let me just introduce you first. So... Hey, Skiba News Nation family. Today we got a very special guest for you guys today. His name is Gene Odom. He was best friends with Ronnie Van Zant, and sadly, he was on the plane that crashed. He luckily survived and is here to tell his story, and he is furthering his best friend's legacy by doing this awesome tour. So I'd like to welcome Gene Odom. Welcome, Gene. Welcome. <laughs> so as I said, you, you were best friends with, with Ronnie Van Zant. Uh, can we pull up some of those photos first and maybe you can tell me more about them. Yeah, that was a uh, we were leaving Greenville going to the uh, uh, Hotel Okay, and they had there was some limousine there, but there was that I think that was an old truck or a car We me and Ryan rode in that and this is where the the memorial is That's Mississippi. Yeah So that's where it went it went down and I've seen videos of it. It's so beautiful. It's, it is, it's magnificent. And we're going to have a, uh, another one being built. Really? Just for Ronnie. It's, yeah. a, it's a monument for Ronnie. It's going to be full length. He's going to be standing up full length. And on the back will be the poem that I wrote about the airplane crash in Mississippi. That's super cool. And the, the unveiling is going to be October the 20th. If you're not doing anything, bring your camera out to Mississippi for the unveiling. I would love to. It's going to be a big, there's going to be thousands of people there. It's going to be oh, big. Yeah. 
I would love to. And then this is you and Ronnie, right? Playing poker, yeah. Yeah. That's me dragging the money there. <laughs> you guys look like you're having fun right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm laughing because, you know, they didn't really know how to play. They did know how to play poker, but they didn't really understand which hands would were better than other hands. Yeah. Or which hands you had a potential to hit if you were betting, you know. And so it was kind of like taking candy from a baby, you know. <laughs> so they didn't really know how to play poker. Ron Eckerman could play and he he, he got them but they just no they just they, they're, they're just like this they had plenty of money they like to gamble <laughs> but they really didn't understand which hands would beat another hand you know wow and then this is you and Ronnie yeah that was you know what that may have been the very first day that I went out with him he had that shirt made for me it said God forgives I don't you know and uh, that was I was, I was early on when I started with him, yeah. Being a lifelong friend of Ronnie Van Zant, can you tell me like your earliest memories of just like growing Ki up together or kids, kids, you know, about, about toddlers. And we would, I was born right downtown Jacksonville. And then we moved over to Mull Street. Ronnie's house was here on the corner of Woodcrest and Mull. And we moved on Mall Street about four houses down and we lived there and then um, we moved back downtown Jacksonville under the Matthews Bridge for about a year and a half about 1958 57 58 for about a year so then we moved back to the west side and we didn't move on Mall Street we moved on the next street over at Pangola and that's where we I grew up and me and Ronnie you know run around together and fished and about road bicycles and kids even before we could ride bicycles we can you know, as far as i can think back you know we were kids that's awesome mm -hmm. and i know that we had talked earlier but you you mentioned fishing and your grandson is doing something actually kind of cool with fishing with you because you were ronnie's lifelong fishing buddy. oh yeah yeah i see let me see if i got the card yeah and and i love to fish too and he's just started this he started a, 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 a guide service it's called high brass guide service llc and he does bass fishing frog gigging and duck hunting when it's duck season and uh if you would like to go bass fishing with my grandson you can contact him at swamp wars at yahoo.com s-w-a-m-p-w-a-r-s at yahoo.com and um He's just central, you know, south of central Florida. The frogs got, I think they got 200 frog legs. So that means uh, 100 frogs. Name's Kobe Crabtree. Cool. Good kid. So he, he kind of learned how to do tours probably through you because that's how you honor your best friend's legacy is you do tours all around where you guys grew up. And well, can you tell me like, so, because many people often forget that like, rock stars and, and people that are famous, they forget that they're real people, which, you know, I can relate to being in the music business. Uh, I was for a long time. Can you tell me who he was as like a person? Like, what was he truly like that people don't know? I mean, just, a, just an old boy that loved to go fishing, barefoot country boy, you know, and um, loved everybody. Give you the shirt off his back if you ask him for it asking for 50 cent or a dime to get some coffee he'd give you all the, all the money he had or 
I had or we had, whoever, you know, however people was there, he'd give you all of it. But he was a great person, you know. And when he started wanting to play music, that was, gosh, 1964. Wow. You know, when he went to see the Stones, they played at Jacksonville there at the stadium, Gator Bowl, and he came back. He'd already flopped at wanting to be a boxer like Cassius Clay. Mm -hmm. As this guy went and beat the hell out of him, so that changed his mind about wanting to be a boxer. Then he wanted to be a running back like Jim Brown, and he made the team first play from scrimmage, first practice game, first play from scrimmage. He got the ball and broke his ankle all to hell so he couldn't be drafted. Yeah. That made him 4F. So then we saw the Stones, he wanted to be a singer, so he, he, the rest of it is history. Yeah, because that's so crazy because later he would, uh, Leonard Skinner opened for the Stones. Yeah. And there's that famous footage of Ronnie pushing them out on the tongue because wasn't, wasn't it legend like, you weren't allowed to be on the tongue unless you were the Rolling Stones, you know? Because it was a rule not to go out on the tongue. Because the tongue, the stones, you know, that was going to be their whole look. So Ronnie walked us all the way down just to defy that order. Alan went out all the way to the score and stopped. And well, he went to his court and jerked him back around. Mick Jagger was mad. It took their breath away. You see how well we went over and how we broke their only rule. Don't go out on the top. He was the rollest of Mick Jaggers. People don't realize, but every tour, every time Mick Jagger travels around, he's in charge of everything wow. from start to finish. Set design, everything. And his concert tours are his set and his logos are for that tour therefore Mick Jagger one time only and they're never put out for display when the concert or tours are over those things are stored multiple storage facilities in the US and multiple storage facilities in the UK that's crazy all of his all of his stuff that he used on stage is one of a kind is stored up and when that stage was built for him they wasn't nobody supposed to go out there, but it was too late for everyone out there. And I don't think they realized that Skinner kicked their ass. And Skinner did The Who and all the rest of them. That's why other bands, um, the other, other big bands that knew about it, they wouldn't never let Skinner open for them because when Skinner hit the big time, they were a headlining act from day one. But they were opening. Yeah, and we kicked the dog piss out of Mick Jagger, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings at the Willie Nelson picnic okay. in 1977. And they came out on stage, Skinner, when Skinner left stage, 97,000 people went crazy. Tore the stage up, tore the PA down, run the Hells Angels off, run everybody off. Willie Nelson didn't want Skinner to do an encore. Everybody was gone. I walked out on the stage. I took the microphone and I told the sound man, I said, I said, my name is Gene Odom. I'm Ronnie's bodyguard and head of Leonard Skinner's security. We wasn't supposed to play a, a encore song. They're at the hotel. You folks need to calm down and back up and let these people put this stuff back together so William Whalen can come out. 97,000 people went back, let them come back and build it. And the promoter came out. He went, I ain't never seen that before. I've never seen that done before. We were scared to death. I said, <laughs> somebody had to do it. So you got to meet like Whalen. Oh, yeah. When, when William Whalen came out, the first thing William Nelson said, what and who was that? That's gonna be a hell of an act to follow and the crowd went crazy again and went we're crazy. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Peter Frampton's Come Alive album came out. Mm -hmm. And so we, we did 
two tours, two, two shows day on the green and the Willie Nelson picnic in between those two shows. The first show, Skinner headlined because it was a co-headline. And then Peter Frampton came out. And then when we went to, we went to um, kick Willie Nelson's but their Tulsa, we come back for the next show. And this, this show, this show, Peter Frampton was headlining. And there was almost 100,000 people. Skinner finished, walked off stage, I put a limousine, they were gone. And so, um, everybody, thousands, tens of thousands of people started leaving the, the stadium. Peter Frampton run out, grabbed the microphone. I'm standing behind the lighting tower, waiting on the limo to come back and get me. He came out and said, hey, come back, come back. I'm Peter Frampton. I'm the headliner. The show's not started. Thousands, tens of thousands of people. Please, come back. I'm the headliner. Just getting on, just going on out. He punched his road manager in the face, kicked his drums over. He was crying. And then the limousine showed up, and I took off, and I was gone. Yeah. See you Get. later. <laughs> yeah. That's a great story. So, uh, did he ever change as a person once he became a star? Because, like, a lot of people, they say do, but he seemed like the most genuine person when you see Most him people do because most people are fake. Yeah, he was a real deal. He was still barefoot to the day he died, and you know he 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 did get buy him an old truck. He wanted an old truck, and he went when we were home. He went to Tennessee to buy a little piece of property, and he saw that truck and he bought it and had it shipped to his house. And that May, he said, "Let's go bass fishing, man. Come on, come on." And we went bass fishing. It was raining. And said, man, let's go home. I got something I can do. I said, "No, nah, man, this is your day." He always wanted an old truck, and he wanted a trophy bass. He always wanted that. Come on, man, let's go. I, it's raining. I said, let's stop. Look, I said, look at the truck. Look at this. It's just stopping right now. We went. The very first cast. Boom. 12-pound, 8-ounce bass. Wow. He caught his trophy bass, so he got both of his trophies just before he died. He got his old That's truck great. and his big bass, yeah. That's great. So, did you always know that Ronnie was going to be become successful? Like when you were ch children and you, you know, riding bikes with them and stuff, you probably never thought you would be a, a rock star or headliner like you turned into. Well, a musician, you know, yeah. And then I was drafted in, in Central Seas in '69, and that's about the time that when they had Larry Johnston was still with them, Bob Burns, and so they were playing smaller gigs and stuff you know I didn't see the stardom at that time because I was away and when I came back they were playing a little bit bigger sure parties and they were a lot, lot more tighter band when they first started out they were just rudimentary with their with their music you know was it when they were one percent yeah they didn't they, they couldn't play that well and yeah. the, and then they did Alan mostly Alan they developed into their own style mm -hmm. And they got better with their own music, better and better and better and better, thanks to Alan Collins. And um, of course, Ed King, Steve Gaines. Mm -hmm. You know, McGeary was a rhythm follower. He was never, he was never a take charge leader, like Alan was. But uh, um, in late 70s, 70, 75, they came off the road to tour with the Who, and um, I knew then if they were playing with the Who, they were doing pretty good. 
but I was working, always working, iron working, and uh, Ronnie was always either on the road or rehearsing. I mean, and working when he was at the auto parts store, and I think he worked there till '71 or '72, until he started making enough money to pay rent, you know, somewhere, you know, and uh, so he would work all day and dr drive 25 miles to the Hell House to rehearse most of the night, come home, get an hour's sleep, and go to work, you know. And uh, in late 75, I realized they were getting bigger and bigger. 76, I knew then that they were on the way. Do you remember the first big hit that you remember him playing for you? Or like him being like, this is, this is you know. Well, to me, um, it's always Freebird. Because, yeah. you know, that was, that was such a, you know, such a phenomenal, even to the day, you know, and you'd have to. Get on record? Okay. Sorry about that. Thank you. You'd have to, uh, have to know the whole story about Freebird, how it was written and how it got started. Alan's wife actually came up with it. If, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? She came up with that lyric because Ronnie couldn't come up with any words at that time for Freebird. Alan had the music, but they couldn't come up with any words. And his wife wrote down notes to Alan and put it over his shoulder. And then Alan called Ronnie, get over here. So Ronnie came over and said, look what Kathy wrote. And Ronnie said, I'm beside Alan Collins. And they wrote the words to Freebird. Just that quick. I heard he memorized the song and he whispered it. He never wrote it down. He never wrote nothing Isn't that amazing? down. amazing? I think that's an amazing thing as a musician like that. That's hard to remember a song like that in your oh. head. All the songs, all the songs, you know. And I remember his, his his logo, his theory was, if it's if it's not good enough to remember, it's not good enough writing down, you know, something like that's what he said. But yeah, he a had a quote. he had a he had a photographic memory, no doubt about that. So, when did when did Ronnie ask you to become the head of security? In '75, he said. I was um, I was laid off and went out with him for a, few, a couple of days. He said, "Man, start making start making the big money." He said, "We're we're doing better now than in '75 because Alan I, I cleared Alan's property for Alan to build his house." And um, he said, "Man, he said well, I, I start getting the big money. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you to be my bodyguard." And you know, in late '76, he came by. We went fishing, and I was between jobs, iron working. And he says, uh, "Hey, man." Look here, he says, um, we're, we're doing good now. I'm making a lot, uh, making big money, and I want you to be my bodyguard. He said, I want you to come to work, start work for me. And he said, we're going to be going to Europe real quick. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't go on that trip because I got a, a lawsuit, a union lawsuit I'm involved in. He said, all right, we're going to go to Europe for a little while. And so when he came back, he came by the house, and he said, I'm here. Here's your first payday. You're on the payroll. You're my bodyguard and security for the band. That was um, early, 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 early 77. And the rest is, is history, as they say. The rest is history, yeah. So you were on, on the fatal crash when, when the terrific incident happened with, you know, I think six people passed yeah. during that plane crash. And you were actually on the plane. and. I don't know if this is okay for me to do. This is a like a, a diagram of the plane. Pretty close, yeah. Can you can you with the 
a marker kind of show everybody like where you were and where Ronnie was? Here's a Sharpie. Yeah, um, it'll mess up your artwork. Oh, that's not mine. <laughs> okay. This is artwork in the plane. You got more of these? Yeah, I got this this one. This I, I like to have one. Yeah. I like to have one of these. Okay. Absolutely. Now, I'm not an artist by no means. And so um, I'll, I'll, I'll start from this was the only way she could really do it. And this plane, this fuselage, this is more authentic here. That would be the pilots. How many pilots were right behind the pilots? Okay, there was a door. And then right behind that, on behind that was a um, the little galley, the bathroom, and then there was the, the couch. Yeah, the it, poker. It, it, yeah, it had a concave in the middle. Not not a big one, but a little concave. Yeah. And then right in front of that was a, uh, I think it was a two by six. Could have been a two by eight. On pedestals. You could sitting on the couch. You could set your drink on it, or you could prop your feet on it. It was about 18 inches high. And so across f from them was Steve and Dean Kilpatrick. And on this side of the plane was two seats, two seats, poker table, two seats there. And across from the poker table was a single table that would had two seats. And at the time of the crash, um, Ronnie was on the floor. Oh, yeah, I remember you telling me on the phone, but I couldn't quite understand. Yeah, but he, he, he wanted to lay down, and he couldn't lay down in his seats, you know, and because he, he had took two sleeping pills. Yeah. And I said, well, where, the, where that table was was like, two foot from the from here you, you know the length of your foot is where the table was I said man look here y'all put your feet up on the table mm -hmm. and Ronnie can lay down underneath y'all's feet and he can sleep there and people can go back and forth to the galley and won't bump into him you want me to draw that in here somehow yeah make it a little smaller yeah. is that good enough yeah that's great all right that's amazing so you actually tried to save uh Ronnie's light. Oh yeah, man! I got him above the floor and strapped him between Alan and Gary. You know, and see what what uh, when the pilot sent the co-pilot out early on when we started having the problem. I'd already went up there once, and when it when it started sputtering and missing, and this guy um, that told me about Cassie unsnapping her seatbelt, he told me he said, "Yeah, man, I." I'm, I'm, I had such a massive head injury in the plane crash and then falling ironwork and I got a, a memory problem. And so uh, when I first went to the cockpit, they were trying to figure out what, the, you know, while we, what was happening. Yeah, while we, you know, while we having fuel problems, trying to switch fuel tanks or whatever, you know. There was no dumping, no fuel. There was no fuel on the plane to dump. Billy Powell face when he said that. And, uh, I ran back and I went, somebody said, what's wrong? And I went, they don't know. I said, you know you're in bad shape and the damn pilots don't know what's going on. That was my first trip up there. And the second trip up there, they were still struggling with it. And I think the second trip is when we ran 
out and they wasn't picking up no more fuel we made the turn to come back to Macomb because you couldn't make the turn with, with the engines with no power yeah, that plane would nose dive into the ground so they had the engine started running enough that they could make the turn at that point in time I think we were at 4,500 feet 4,500 feet at that point because we'd already come a long way down they thought they had enough airspeed to make that field you know and so uh, when the plane weighed 30,000 pounds empty so as it was traveling it was losing airspeed you know because of hitting hitting the atmosphere was yeah. slowing us down instead of, instead of having 100 miles an hour when we started hitting them trees it was 55 60 miles an hour and that weight of the plane started that nose dive it right into them trees I, I ran back and uh, kicked Ryan in the ribs again told him get up man it's, you know and I asked everybody they all strapped in it was you know and it, so um, then I went back up there the third time to argue with them and cuss them out and then that's when I that's when I seen the plane do this mm -hmm. so I knew we wasn't gonna make the field and I told him I said I hope you two guys live through this because I'm gonna beat both of y'all to death and so um, I grabbed Ronnie up off the floor and started struggling with him getting him sitting down and at no time no time did he ever know that that plane was crashing did he comprehend it because he was so grogged out from them two sleeping pills he died not knowing that that plane was actually crashing you know and it was almost uh, peaceful in a way and he you know he, and you could say that but if you knew how bad he hated to fly oh that boy hated to fly yes yeah, sir he was scared to death of flying you know he hated it hated it you know he did it when he had to do it but he hated flying now I heard I don't know if this is urban legend but that there were two other bands that turned down that plane it's like Aerosmith or well that I'll, I'll straighten you out on all that uh, the road manager had talked that company in to buy that plane and they didn't have license to haul people they were a freight hauling outfit so they established on paper L&J leasing and got licensed to fly people. And so his intention was to charge the band more money for the plane than it was worth, uh, than they should have paid. And more money per air mile for gas, more money. He was going to charge the band more money for the plane so he could get a commission off of the band. Wow. And, and he didn't come out with that until after I said I know you was getting a kickback you know and he, he didn't call it a kickback when he wrote his book he called it a commission to keep the band on that plane he would get a commission and I was going to put a stop to all that all that was coming to a screeching halt as soon as that tour was over but the plane crash stopped all that you know well I mean it's amazing what you're doing now if you could tell our audience what, what, you're, what you do to carry on your best friend's legacy I think is the coolest thing ever and I can't wait to go to Jacksonville to experience it but I, I take people on a tour of the west side where we came from Ronnie's old house Allen's Geary's where they came from the neighborhoods we came from where the where the old Curtis Lowe store was where we used to pick I used to take the coke bottles down to Cashman where we played football as kids <clears throat> our old neighborhood the schools they went to you know and where we grew up just tell the legacy story of Leonard Skinner where the music came from and where they came from you know and I, I'd average about two a month you know and um, I'll, I'll make sure we put Patty's number on here oh, absolutely. If, if anyone want to call Patty and she could set it up 
but people the people that come on the tour are hardcore Skinner fans Ronnie Van Zandt fans Alan Gary they want to learn the true story about the music where the music came from mm -hmm. and you know what better than one of the guys that grew up with the music and grew up with Ronnie and was on the plane and can tell you the true story mm -hmm. about you know not just kind of BS stuff but mm -hmm. the, the true story people really enjoy it that are real hardcore Skinner fans they really like it well, I'm gonna call it the, this episode the, the true story of what happened to Leonard Skinner told by Gene Odom because you were there I know there's a lot of false stories out there and we won't really get into that but there's also the movie that I did called the last 72 hours of Leonard Skinner that's a, that's none of that Artemis BS you know and that movie that his movie was 100% garbage it's good and, and people still watch it and how could they watch that uh, Amazon or Netflix I think it's on it's called last 72 hours of Leonard Skinner last you can pull it up yeah okay so everybody go check that out you've also I believe wrote a wrote a book right I wrote a couple of books yeah and it's called Leonard Skinner remembering the free birds of southern rock Amazon has it Random House Broadway books and you can get that from Broadway books Random House on Amazon called the free birds of um, Leonard Skinner remembering the free birds of southern rock I wish I had one I brought with me and then you also have shirts right I'm not selling my white t-shirt but <laughs> I have some shirts yeah uh, I want I have one that says uh, old Leonard Skinner music still kicks ass and it has all of the dead men dead people on the on the, their names are on the shirt that and I have one uh, Hell House t-shirt and I have one that um, um, I'm, I'm going to find some way to make me a page to put these things on it put these shirts on it but uh, the the best one I have is the uh, old Leonard Skinner music still kicks ass because people uh, I, I would love to get me it, one it of those does, it, it old Leonard Skinner music still kicks ass after all these years you know and that's a testament to Ronnie's writing mm -hmm. and the other guy's music you know and other Alan and Gary they, they were songwriters Ed King Steve Gaines but Ronnie wrote most of the lyrics you know and uh, it's a testament to what they did and to this day they never wrote a bad song all of their songs can still be heard on the radio mm -hmm. very few people can say that their songs are being heard on the radio 50 years later that's you know true I mean? and yeah. I mean Alabama changed this like little slogan when you enter to sweet home Alabama so mm -hmm. it's like yes sir we about to wonder what Ronnie would have thought about that he'd be humbled he'd be humble as he could be you know if he if you touch this about it, he just he just he just he, he, he wouldn't make no scene of it you know now me and my girlfriend we saw Leonard Skinner uh, this was a couple of years ago and this is my personal opinion it was watching a giant cover band it was it wasn't it didn't feel authentic to me and I remember saying that out loud to my girlfriend that it didn't feel right there was something I mean it wasn't Ronnie it was it was just like a, a giant cover band and and uh that's what they are they're a tribute band were established in 1987 as a tribute band mm -hmm. tribute band tribute tribute incorporated tribute inc they ain't gonna change nothing yeah you know you can put lipstick on a pig it's still a pig <laughs> you know and then like what do you think ronnie would think today about like cancel culture like i know that that i mean behind him the the rebel flag used to be something like this used to it was stood for southern pride you know and today they would they would cancel this or they would say like 
they're racist, but in my opinion, and I've I've actually debated people, they're like, that music is racist. I said, why? Have you listened to their music? If you listen to the ballad of Curtis Lowe, I mean, you would see that that I don't think Ronnie had a racist bone in his body. Ain't nothing, nothing racist about them. There was only one band member in that band that was racist, and I'm not going to say his name. It wasn't Ronnie Van Zant, believe me. It wasn't Alan Collins. <clears throat> you think he would have put an American flag or a Trump 2024 flag? Do <laughs> you think he would be a Trump supporter today? Certainly. Guarantee it. It's like yeah. Johnny and Donnie are. You know, Judy, she's a Democrat. Because when the Democrats get rich, people get rich, they think they're, you know, they're, they're above people. Mm -hmm. And that's what Democrat dem democracy for the Democrats is all about, is that you know, when you get rich, every one of them get rich. All of them billionaires, they're all Democrats because they think they're better than everybody else. They're going, you, they're, going, they're going to look down on the peons because we're rich, we're famous. Ronnie Van Zant, Johnny and Donnie. Somebody said that about Johnny and Donnie because Judy was a Democrat. I said, drive out to Johnny and Donnie's house and see who signs in the front yard. <laughs> I know who signs in the front yard, Trump. You know, especially young people, they're misguided because of the people in Washington. That's Mind control goes back to the beginning of time. MK Ultra, they're using it on the masses today. Oh yes, sir. It goes way back, you know. And if, if, you, can, if you can control their mind, you can get all of their money. And it goes way back. Well, I, I shouldn't say this on there, but secret societies go back to the beginning of time, and they're still here today. Some of them are still here today. I can name them to you, but I'm not going to do it on that camera. You know, one of the biggest secret societies on the planet. It's the biggest church, I ain't gonna name it, system in the world. It's one of the biggest secret societies to ever exist. And it's mind control. If they can control your mind, they can get all your money. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, like a lot of people think that every musician is in the Illuminati, is what they say. But I know that that's not true because I've been in the music industry and, and you could set the record straight that Ronnie wasn't in the Illuminati. That's not a real thing. Ronnie wouldn't know that. Yeah, you know he would he, he 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 would know about it. He would be educated about it, but he would not stick his foot in it. Either way, none of that. And um, the Democrats of old mm -hmm. and these new ones, they they don't they they don't show their true colors. Slavery, all of that. The KKK, all of that was Democrats. Yep, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. It, it, you're right, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. And they're trying to change their, you know, be a chameleon. No, they can't. Because if they can get control of your mind, they can get control of your money and keep you under their thumb. Uh -huh. But times are different and things are different and there's too many organizations, uh, countries, uh, one, maybe two one maybe one for sure maybe two that could put a stop to all that and if the youth has no idea what they're facing in 5 10 15 20 years if people like the republicans and trump don't put their foot down put a stop to it young people can't see that but the problem with young people and democrats is they have to be protected also mm -hmm. somebody some bigger guy somebody with a more power has to protect them democrats youth and the older ones they have to be protected so there has to be a society and that society has to be a group of people republicans if you want to call them republicans that 
are, are willing to give their life to protect the innocent, mm -hmm. meaning the, the weak, the innocent, the Democrats, the way they think. You know, and uh, I'm not a politician by no means, but they have to be protected. Somebody has to protect them. Us, me, you, the military, our government, you see what they've done to the military. But there is, there's, there's foes out there watching, getting ready. If you don't think the Chinese ain't in this country, have infiltrated this country, big time, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it every day, walking across that border. Chinatown, the Chinese have controlled the, the um, prostitution market since the beginning of time. And they still control it in California and many, many places around the world. You know, you might want to edit that out. <laughs> I mean, well, we cover that a lot on the show. Like, that's what our show is about, is about showing that conspiracy theories aren't really conspiracy theories. You, you read? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Pull up the Life magazine, the magazine Secret Societies. Okay. The whole magazine is about secret societies that go back to the beginning of time till today. Till today. I'll have to look at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, oh, like, yeah. I'm, I'm really see fascinated. Who's, see who's in there ex-presidents that's uh, Yale and Harvard they have their own secret society Skull and Bones Skull and Bones is one the other one is I can't think of another name and who some of the members of it but yeah see, the Bohemian Grove Bo and, oh yeah oh yeah yeah it's, Everybody, it's got it's frightening it, stuff it's, yes sir buddy yes sir it's, got good, it's good reading Illuminati how every all these things got started how they where they, where they go back to and uh, it's really good read yeah. I have to check that out. Well, thank you for being on the sh on Skiba News Nation.